Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Inner Circle podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about what is changing in the film industry. We have tighter schedules. We have shrinking budgets. We have tax incentive states that are popping up left and right and tax incentive countries. We have new camera technology rolling out almost every three months, as well as lighting technology that's really changing like at the blink of an eye. All right, let's get into this, Lydia. Where do you want to start? in this episode because I get to interview you, Shane. No way. About what is changing for the film industry. And I feel like this is a particularly important moment in time for the industry. And with change comes opportunity. So let's talk about schedules and very specifically how you navigate and manage shifting and changing schedules trying to pack more into a day. Talk about what you do on set. So I think that uh, I noticed a, a big shift, um, I would say, in the late 2000s, uh, kind of almost after Act of Valor, where the schedules started to really shrink. Uh, the The days were really micromanaged to an absolute T. You could see that the because the budgets were shrinking, uh, the schedule shrinks. They're one in the same. So what I had to do is how can I, with a shrinking schedule, with, you know, because every time I sit down with the first AD, he is, he or she will set and we'll go, you know, this is really a, you know, 62 day schedule, but they want it for 58. It's always that every conversation is like, well, this is really a 40 day schedule, but we're going to have to do it in 35 or 37 <laughs> or, you know, everything is always the schedule is what they put their all their experience, all their intuition, all that they have learned over the years is presented to the studio and the producers. And then they say, okay, I love all this experience. I love all that you bring to the table, but cut three days. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, wait, what? So 
we as artists and cinematographers, we have to react to this. And I've tried to find as many things to kind of, you know, work along with this compact shooting schedule. And I think the big thing was more prep. Mm-hmm. And because I said, if you're going to ask of me and my crew to move faster, to shoot more pages per day, then I need more prep in the beginning to set everyone up for success. And I, I also feel that knowing you as well as I do, that not only are you very visual with your prep documents, but it's it's really a setting the tone for communication because communication is everything and communication is everything in prep. And I know that another big part of what is happening in the industry is that people that are not trained are coming in and, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but, but communication is so essential in your prep process. So maybe talk just a little bit about how you do that. Yeah. So my prep process is very unique because I know that because every time I work with a crew, they've never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of because of my experience and where I started out, because starting out as a grip truck driver and working my way up on the technical side of lighting and grip, uh, I was able to really be very specific and it's not like I'm going to defer to my gaffer or my key grip about this. I have the knowledge to be able to at least get very close. And then I look to my gaffer and key grip and my other uh, uh, Kia departments to then finesse it to make it their own, mm-hmm. right? So it's like I set the brick and mortar So we know what it is. So let's talk about that communication. It's documents that literally go scene to scene that tells the camera department what stuff they're using that day. So maybe we have a remote head, a techno crane. We're going to go handheld. What is our configurations? Is it, is it Steadicam? Is it, is it uh, Ronin? Um, what frame rate are we shooting? Are we doing different shutter angles? Um, are we then to the grip department? Are we using negative fill? Are we using a dolly? Are we using a rickshaw? Is it a techno crane? Is it a is it a uh, Russian arm? You know, is it a is it a uh, ultimate arm car? Uh, you know what what exactly is the grip department doing that day? What exactly in that scene? Then with the electric department, are there gags, lighting gags? Are there, is it a day exterior package? Is it an interior? What's the art department supplying? What the visual effects is going to have to do? Uh, So I'm putting this all in a document that is scene by scene. So when you look at it, it's a daily reminder of what is required to do. And when you do this, you build so much confidence with your crew. Because they see the roadmap. But it's, so I'm going to speak to this document because I've seen it. And it's a living, breathing document. And I think that this is very important because there's the prep document. And then when you go to the actual shooting days, it's not like it's a stagnant 
document. No, it this gets- thing is a collaborative document that everyone is a part of. The director is a part of. The AD can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the AD then takes my shot list and everything and my blocking schematics, and he or she will order it in the way that he or she wants it shot on the day. So maybe starting with the wide first, then going the mediums. You know, so she he or she looks at the shot list and then rearranges it within the document. So all these documents... I ask of my team to also be included. So I send my gaffer, my key grip, the best boys, the uh, ringing teams. So if there's anything that they want to add on that day, they can add on that day as notes. So, and this is done way in advance. We're talking four weeks before we even start production. Okay, this is so great on timing. So what else do you do? You have physical meetings, you have maybe meetings at the beginning and the end of the day to discuss, you know, what's changing or what you would like to see. Or so I I really want to almost go through a day in the life because I think this is so important. So you have these documents that get shared. Everybody says, okay, awesome. We're ready. We're set up for success. Yeah. They got the whole roadmap. And then uh, each day when the preliminary call sheet comes out, my visual assistant, uh, she takes those and puts the whatever is being shot that next day and she extrapolates it out of all the documents, out of the shot listing document, out of the blocking schematic document, out of the specialty gear document, and she puts them into a daily shooting plan. And the team gets this the day before we shoot. Each day. Each day. So then that way they get the document. It starts the conversation like this. And this is what you want to do when you're on these tight shooting schedules is you want to be able to educate your team in this way so they can come up to me and they can say, hey, Shane, I see that you want to use this, that, and the other. And we had to drop that because of this. Uh, We had to take them off the package. So I'm going to make sure I get them in here for tomorrow uh, because they were originally on our main lighting package, but we had to save money. So they were, so that's kind of a drop load scenario. Mm-hmm. But this is the kind of thing when you get into production and we're moving a hundred million miles an hour, this is that document that just puts the brakes on just for five minutes and they can actually look at it and ingest it and say, oh shit, I forgot this. We got to go grab that. Or, Off the truck. Oh, or, yeah, yeah. Or, oh my God, we, I just heard from locations that we can't put the techno crane down at this location. So we've had to do it with something else. And, you know, it's like all these. So even though it's a living, breathing and document, there's always going to be curveballs and things that happen on set on the day. And this document kind of sets the brick and mortar for you to be able to react to it in a very controlled and de-stressed way that you can then just make it look effortless. And maximize your creativity in that moment. Right. And that's the best part. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Let's talk money. Wah, wah, wah. Everybody everybody hears the term money. And I just want to say money is energy. And it's, you beat me up so much on budgets and it's here at never, it's never Filmmakers Academy, about, you're killing me. It's never about the, the number. It is, it's, this is the tricky thing with money. 
because it's a fine line of holding the line of getting to the number of there's always a give and take with money because money is literally an energetic exchange, right? I'm giving something to you for something that you're giving to me. And I think if people viewed money with that energetic value, then it's not a personal thing. It's really an exchange of energy. So with that being said, you're always asking to do more with less or asked to do more with less. The crews are definitely asked to do more with less. They're getting beaten up for their rates. How, how do you navigate all of this? Um, because it's changed a lot from the, the 80s where like <laughs> the big budget early 90s was a great time to be in the film industry and to be paid well and to not feel like you had to fight for every yeah, single... Yeah, the cost of living and everything was, uh, was lower. Um, you know, you don't have crew members buying up all this gear like, you know, a lot of ACs buy their... Uh, remote follow focus. They'll buy their focus monitors. Mm -hmm. They'll buy heads. All this. They they never used to do that. It, they went to the rental house. The rental house supplied it. Mm -hmm. They're doing it now because that's the only way that they can make a living. So they need to buy gear to mm -hmm. then rent it. That they take care of it, and it's they know exactly what they're going to have every single job yes. because it's what they own. And they can actually make a living at it. So by the budgets being cut, the crew is being is being cinched as well as along with rental houses and everything. Everyone's being asked to do. I mean, I can remember when it went from a three day week on rentals to a one day week, and then it went from a one day week to a half day week. Then it went to a 0.25 day week. <laughs> then my last couple movies has been at a ridiculous lower rate than 0.25, and which is really hard for rental companies to stay not only relevant, not only so they can react to our needs, but also how do you survive in that kind of because tumultuous? the margins are just not they're there. so the, so minimal yeah and with technology changing so quickly they need the latest and greatest but huh. we're going to get into that uh, a little further down but i guess i get hired to take a 25 million dollar movie or a 50 million dollar movie and make it look like a 100 million dollar movie uh 25 million and 80 million dollar movie that's what people bring me in on. And I'm able to do that because of kind of my DIY style. I've kind of adapted more of a scrappy nature as a filmmaker, uh, trying to do more with less. So, you know, I have to a lot of times come into locations and go with what's existing in there and just do uh, small manipulation. Um, there's a, a great takeaway on this working with budgets is a story uh, that Gabriel Muccino and I had. And this is about managing expectations because first off, you're asked to be pulling off the impossible. So you got to wait, you got to really weigh hard on your crew, right? You're asking them to, you know, move faster, uh, you know, sometimes not break, 
You know, these are the kind of things you're asking of them to be able to complete the schedule and also stay on the budget that the uh, producers have set up for us. Right. right. And I was just going to say production is actually asking them to do this. And I want to clarify this. So if they're not breaking, they're getting paid not to break. Yes. Okay. So just so everybody's not like, wow, you're not, you are behind your crew a thousand percent. It's, it's the way the job is set up. And Correct. I think that, that that is a really important distinction because every cinematographer as a leader needs to have their crews back and vice versa. And I think where it gets really tricky is that production is pushing, right? Very hard sometimes. And how do you find that balance with your crew? There's a lot of producers that no is the only word they ever mention. Yes. No, you can't have it. Yeah. And then there's some that all uh, say yes all the time. And I'm like, how is this possible? I've been just working with somebody that told me no all the time. And now everyone tells me yes. And then some are like, no, yes, no, yes, no. Yeah, yeah, yes, no. I mean, you got a whole mixed bag. Just like every director is different. Mm -hmm. Every producer produces differently. It's all good. We have to react to it. We have to ebb and flow with it. That is our job as cinematographers, right? Uh, hearing no 360 times a day is degrading, but it's part of our job description. We have to understand what no means and no only makes you stronger because when I take a no, I turn it into a yes. And the way I'm doing that is I'm managing the expectations of the whole crew and the production and managing expectation has to start at the director. This is where Gabrielli and I work so well on fathers and daughters. We had a four week prep. Now I walked into it and this was the best prep movie I had ever been on from a production design, you know, directing, producing. I was like, I walked into it and I was like, my God, every location I walked into was shootable, was lightable, was, you know, it was like all those kind of things. It wasn't like, what are they thinking? We, you think we've been, we're going to shoot here. There was never those moments and you have them on every movie, but this one was it. There was just an energy to it. That was incredible. But After we did all of that and my crew went through all the tech scouts and, you know, Gabrielli was very adamant about having pre-lights, you know, not pre-lights, but let's pre-rigs. Yes. So we wanted pre-rigs so we could walk in and he had the time to work with the actors, to get them in the zone, to be able to deliver their performance. That was his, that was his main goal. So I was like, okay, well, the budgets came back and the pre-ringing budget was completely blown out. Blown out. <laughs> and the producer came to me and he said, Shane, I cannot afford this vision at all. And we need to do something. You need to cut crew. You need to cut lighting. You need to, ch- you need to reinvent your whole plan. I was like, my God, we've only had four weeks to prep this. Where then this happened three days before we were going to shoot. 
But one quick question here. The producer not only asked you to do that, but every department where yes. it was like, oh my God, we're just blown out. And yeah. what do we do? Correct. No. He was asking my department because I was blown out. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't asking the other departments. I mean, maybe, but I know that that was a big one for him. We had a, a huge set that was Russell Crowe's apartment. And that was a big pre-rig. And he didn't have the money to pre-rig it. And we were going to literally show up on and start lighting on a set that needed to be pre-rigged. We needed it into dimmer boards. We needed to be able to prep ourselves to be able to stay on schedule and, and stay on budget. Off. Yeah. So I went to, and this is where you're managing expectations and really, I'm going to say this in a, in a way that as a director of photography, I have made the mistake of taking on way too much responsibility than I should. Yeah. And I take on too much responsibility of what the director's responsibility is or others throughout. And that has been a fault of mine and a failure sometimes. Trying to serve the project. It's like, oh, okay, I'll handle it. I'll do it. And I think a lot of people do this. Yes. Because it's, oh, I don't want to bother the person. I don't want to give them one more thing to think about, especially- Because the director is balancing so, so much. much. And your job is to take the weight off of the director. Correct. And so you're like, okay, I'll just handle it. I'll do it. But I think the lesson here is in not sharing- especially when your department is way overblown and we'll get to your solution here. But it's like when you share something, then it's a brain trust that comes out and other people can then say, Hey, what if we do this? Or what about that? And then it takes that weight off your back as being the sole person responsible. Yeah. And of course I turn to my key grip and my gaffer and my rigging teams and everything. How can we pare down? How can we shrink and everything? Yeah. And they did little things, but it wasn't enough. We were so far over. So what was the genius move here? So, and this is uh, a real big, this was an aha moment for me because I, at that point, I made the decision to actually involve the director in my situation, mm -hmm. which I had not done in Up until then. 20 movies, mm -hmm. right? Which you just was handled it. Yeah, I just handled it. And that came to a breaking point mm -hmm. where I, I just can't handle it all. And the stress on me is like, oh my God, if I have to reduce all this pre lighting and not have all this stuff on dimmers and everything. I am going to be not delivering anything that I promised to our director. So by involving the director, so you met with Gabrielli. Yeah, we met with Gabrielli and I said, um, the producer came to me and he said that we're, you know, $75,000 mm -hmm. over in pre-light, pre-rigging pre uh, and that we need to cut it to zero that he didn't have the pre-rigs in the budget. He didn't have all this stuff. And you don't want to let him down. Right. So what do we do? So he goes, I go, but one thing that the producer told me is he had budgeted 13 and a half hour days 
for the run of the whole movie. So if we can find some days that we can do it in 10 hours or eight hours or surprise the hell out of him and do it in six hours, then he can use that and to pay for everything. And Gabriele is going, okay, let's sit down and look at the schedule. So we brought the assistant director in and we literally went day by day. And we said, this day we're going to do in 13 and a half. This day we're going to do in 10. This day we're going to do in eight. And then we shared those numbers with the producer. And we were able to get all my pre-rigs, all the extra lighting that I wanted. I was able to have the days to program all the dimmer boards in. So when we went in there and Russell Crowe was ready to act and he was in the zone, it was just take 10% down on number one. Okay, bring up 5% on number three. It was like a machine. And all of that was because I took the time to involve the director and manage expectations for our, you know, for our vision. And I think the result of that was the, the solution was so much better than had you tried to come up with it by yourself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and by doing that, it's also formulated my 33.3%. And that is, you know, investing in your crew, inspiring your crew, uh, protecting your crew, that's 33.3 uh, of your job. Supporting the director in his or her vision, you know, going to the, taking the hill, doing all that 33.3. And then the producing team, being able to be specific. No, the, the techno crane doesn't come for three weeks. It comes on the days that we are using that specific device. So that it's, it's not, not just, just sitting there Exactly, wasted. with a yeah. whole crew and a whole, everyone that's on eight hour days and not 13 and a half hour days. <laughs> Sorry, we finished each other's sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I know what he's thinking. Okay, so that is a brilliant solution. Let's move on to tax incentives and how tax incentive states, how, how all of those tax incentives are really impacting you and your job and everybody, every yeah, filmmaker. This, this is a big, has been a big shift. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the fact that Atlanta is our new Hollywood and does 80% more production than Los Angeles is a big, like, wait, what just happened? You know, and uh, so Atlanta has become the Hollywood hub now. And it's done that on the backs of a lot of different filmmakers coming there and trying to train the crews and, and get them up to speed. A lot of them are actual uh, L.A. people that moved out to Atlanta because there wasn't work in L.A., so they moved to Atlanta and set up base. Those people have been trained by L.A. That is a great... That's, so when you're going into tax incentive states, I always like to look at the phone number. If the phone <laughs> number is 213-818-310-626, <laughs> uh, I know I'm golden. I know when I'm interviewing that person, that has been a, a, mm -hmm. an L.A. Uh, plant. 
right? That's, that's come out. So that's right off the bat. I'm looking for phone numbers when I'm interviewing and everyone's like, what are you talking about? Uh, but it's the truth. Um, when you do get into these tax incentive states, you know, let's talk about Georgia. We got Louisiana. We got uh, British Columbia. Uh, there's New Mexico has a tax incentive. Uh, there's one in Boston and, New and Massachusetts. Just, New York has a massive mm-hmm. tax incentive. Upstate New York is 50 on the dollar. And that's so if what you I was spend a dollar, you get 50 cents back. That's huge. But there's no crew up there. So you have to bring everyone in. So mm-hmm. these are this is growing pains of tax incentive states. Atlanta doesn't have the growing pains anymore. Mm-hmm. But all these newer startups have the growing pains of just a crew base that is not trained. And so it becomes kind of uh, our responsibility of earn while you learn, which is, you know, these crews tend to not be filmmakers, right? So the ones that don't have the 213 and 805 and 818 area codes, a lot of the time they are they were just working in a peanut farm. They were just shaking chestnuts out of a tree. They were uh, working at uh, construction. Whatever they are, they're turning to the film industry of Georgia and Atlanta because it's gotten so massive and they see that there's money to be made there. And it's not all bad. No. If they're if they're willing to be open and learn. And I think that, you know, just because somebody doesn't have experience there's the the possibility to teach them an enormous amount and for them to be a sponge. So it really, I would argue, depends on the person, on their attitude. Absolutely. On and their willingness to learn. And like the SEALs always told me, it's a mindset. When you go into that program, mm-hmm. it is a mindset. We as filmmakers that came out of film school that that did this as our career have a filmmaking mindset. A person that came out of a chestnut shaking or a peanut farm or whatever, or a a construction job does not have the filmmaking mindset. So what we need to do is help change that and help to introduce them to this mindset. So it's things like set etiquette. It's really over-communicating. Over-communicating is huge. So like I was talking about how I communicate to all Mm -hmm. my teams so everyone has that brick-and-mortar foundation, that needs to be passed down from the keys to the the, uh, crew members. So they can see that document and they can understand mm-hmm. where the the roadmap is. So everyone feels more confident. Yes. And you also want to inspire them. Mm-hmm. You want to, if, if they're looking like they don't know how to operate a light, like I've had, you know, in British Columbia, I had a, I was shooting resident alien up there and I was, um, I was setting up these Boca uh, boards, I call them. So I took, black and white foam, or actually black on black foam core, cut holes in it, and then put little um, gels on them. And then we positioned that outside the windows so it looked like, you know, activity across the street. And we were going to backlight it with a 1K Fresnel. So I'm like, hey, 
hop up out there and you know flip that 1K light on and let's work on positioning uh, the the Boca board. He's like, got it. And then, you know, so, hey, Shane, what, what do we want to do over here? Are we lay in the dolly track? And I'm like, yeah, let's say lay the dolly. And I pull out my Artemis. I'm like, all right, from here to here, all this, you know, I'm doing like five minutes goes by and the light's still not on. So I walk outside and I look at him. He's like this. How do you turn it on? I'm like, the switches <laughs> click here, right? And he's like, oh, thank you. And I go, all right, have you ever seen this light before? He goes, I'm sorry, I'm a permit. Uh, I just got off a oil dike in Saskatchewan. All right, this is a 1K baby baby. Made my mole. It's the industry standard of tungsten lights, okay? You can switch it on the side of it, and then sometimes it's on the cable. So it all depends per rental house. Then, you know, this is the spot. I took him through the whole operations of the light. That time that I took, I was not belittling the person at all. I was seeing that he was a permit. He just got thrown onto this project. And I was taking the time at that point to educate him. And he was eager to learn. And he was eager to learn. Mm -hmm. And I saw that he was eager to learn. learn, And I said, okay, I have this really cool site called Filmmakers Academy. (laughs) What do you want to be? A grip? Electric? What do you want to be? And he goes, I really like this electric stuff. I love slinging this cable and doing all that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you this electric uh, career path. Please watch it and report back. And I started doing this in every tax incentive state where I got a lot of permits. And it was awesome because they were actually doing the work and they would come to me with questions. And this is when I started to see the tax incentive thing so I could make it my own and Mm -hmm. turn a con into a pro, Right. right? So I'm empowering them not belittling them. And I think that this is where other crew members sometimes get really frustrated. Yeah, why do we have to teach, teach him? him? My God, come on. You know, he's supposed to be here or she's supposed to be here. They're, they're supposed, supposed to, to know, know exactly what we're because doing. Because they're getting paid. And I think that it's really understanding that whatever the case may be about somebody's background, this is where we all are. (laughs) This is the set that we're on. And we can choose to be angry and resentful towards somebody, or we could really try to make it a much better, happier, and more welcoming place, knowing that, yes, they're going to mess up. But it's like, how, how can we become better and more inclusive by really trying to set them up for success as you did? And I think that that's a really important point about being a good person because I think you know you sometimes it's easy to get grumbly or have negativity or negative attitude or especially when you're pressured and stressed on set as a filmmaker and it's taking a moment and putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about like wow this has to be really uncomfortable and challenging and talk about being out of your comfort zone really being thrown into it (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And the other thing as cinematographers, we also have to think about because I know we're put under intense amount of stress and intense amount of pressure. So I think as cinematographers, we also have to understand when we go to tax incentive states, we have to understand that a lot of these people are not filmmakers. 
we have to manage our expectations yes. as a cinematographer when we come into these environments and try to do whatever we can to set it up for success. So we don't have to worry about that. And that's kind of what I do in the beginning. I really talk to my crew and I tell them how I roll out mm -hmm. and how I and what I expect from them. Yes. Right. And that is a big thing to do at the beginning because you set the tone. Yes. So if you're direct and not so, hey, do you mind? Hey, can you put that single in there? Oh, pan it real quick. Come on. You know, <laughs> uh, they're not going to get irritated because they know deep down my passion is to deliver this vision. To, in, right. And I've already inspired them with my talk and everything to, to tell them, I would not ask any more of them that I don't ask of myself. Yes. And that's where I start. It's like, you can see the paper trail that's been generated. You can see how much work I've done to prepare yourself for success. So honor that and respect that. So when I am maybe a little direct, it's don't take it as a personal attack. Just know that we're we're behind and we need to move and we need to get this done. Otherwise, now. we're not going to make our day. Exactly. And it has nothing to do with them. So it allows them to depersonalize. Exactly. It. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Camera technology. Let's switch gears. And we talked about a lot of cameras coming out maybe every three to six months. What have you seen? How has that impacted the industry in terms of changing it? Well, I mean, the dynamic is really changing because rental houses, I feel, are really being sacrificed. Mm -hmm. Because when it was film, a camera could live and breathe for 15, 20 years with it ever being changed. I mean, I think about the days where I had the Panastar and the Panagold, and then they updated it to the Millennial and then the Millennial XL. These all happened after five or 10 years of, you know, innovation, but it hardly changed. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, hardware was only designed by Panavision, Airy, and, uh, you know, so those those were the industry leaders. So there wasn't all this third party. There wasn't wooden camera. There wasn't cine milled. There wasn't this, all these uh, tilta. There wasn't all these other uh, competition that are also making the same uh, support and everything that Airy and Panavision made. So rental houses, because the cameras are changing so quickly, they don't have the time to even take a breath and actually make money on the investment mm -hmm. uh, because it's being changed out to another camera and another camera and another camera. It, the Venice 1 was just really good two years ago, but now the Venice 2 is out. No one wants to shoot with the Venice 1. The Venice 2 is better. There's hardly much. I mean, they made some great modifications, but... This is the vicious cycle that we're in with camera technology changing so quickly. And all of a sudden we went from, from being, I love 
super 35, it's great. That's all I need to everything needs to be large format and everything needs to be the shallow focus. And now we're going to anamorphics. And then the lenses, there used to be just 15, 20 sets of lenses that you could rent. Now there's 600 and everyone's making a different lens. So they have to keep up with that as well because, mm -hmm. you know, the only way you can make money is if you have the gear and you actually bought it. If you have to then sub-rent it, then you're losing money on that. So all these rental houses are expected to immediately, you know, come up with millions and millions of dollars to support all these lenses. Oh, I want the this type and I want the Caldwells. Oh, now I want the new Airy Signature Primes. No, I got the Leica, the new Leica LZs. You know, it's like it, there's like a different every day there's a new lens that pops out. But it's not new. It's old glass that's been then modified. So it is new to everyone. So it's like taking the old Canon FDs and now remodifying them and rehousing mm -hmm. them and recoding them. And, you know, so it's like it's an endless suck of money and time and research and all this stuff. So you got to you got to kind of see how we can as a entity of camera manufacturers, lens manufacturers start to say, because I remember back in the day, the camera and lens manufacturers were like this with the rental houses. Mm -hmm. If something was coming out, they were telling them. If so, that is all gone rogue. And it feels like with technology, not only for the rental houses, which my heart goes out. I mean, I can't even imagine it. But it's also for the technicians because it's constantly about the the latest and greatest. And do you know about this? And do you know about that? And how do you, it's the, the rat wheel. Of oh, think about a technician. It's like before they had to learn an Airy 3 or an Airy 4, mm -hmm. they had to uh, you know, they had to know the Airy film line and the Panavision film line, and then maybe Movie Cam or Aton or Eclair. That was really all there was in the whole world of, of film. film. Uh, that's four or five cameras. They have to, every time a new camera comes out, it's a new memory system, a menu system. It's a new this, it's a new that, it's a new understanding all the different sub menus. And so technicians have to now be going to school every three months to just mm -hmm. really ingest this and know the tech. And, and this is why I feel... It was more camera personnel were being underpaid, but I also think it's now the lighting and grip crews, maybe lighting more uh, that the technology is spinning so much, mm -hmm. but they're underpaid because the technology, there used to be a dimmer board op and the dimmer board op had to know everything about the electronics, the DMX, the, you know, universes, all that kind of stuff, you know, within the, the, um, the dimmer board platform. Now all these lights have apps for them and you got to download the app and then you can control the light with the app or you have blackout or luminaire. So now all these, uh, 
set electricians that used to just be able to run power, plug in a light and snap on a fixture are now having to go back to school, understand how to program these lights, understand because the menus and the sub menus on LED lights are just advanced as the damn camera menus now. <laughs> the sub menus are so deep to get to exactly what you want that you need to go back to school to be able to operate these things. And the hours that you have to put in in terms of research offset so that by the time that you get to set, you're efficient as heck. I'm exhausted just, just listening. Just thinking about it. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I... And we need my stress class to like calm down after well, all the Well, the thing time. is, is like when, when a AC comes in and I'm like, all right, you know, fire this thing up. And he goes, I haven't reused a red Gemini in a while. I'm like... Uh oh, you know, uh, or I haven't used this Venice two yet. I'm like, Eesh. you know, so I'm like, okay, I just want you to know what I expect of you. We have six months on this movie. I need you to know everything about it. And then I need you to educate me on everything about it. So if I'm up in a condor and we need to change the aspect ratio or something, or I got a problem solve something up there, I'm not uh, alone. I can actually do it. And I'm relying on you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when, when I did need for speed, we literally trailblazed an untested Canon cinema platform. No one even knew what the menus did. Yeah. No one knew how to access them. And also Canon's languaging was so different than what they had ever seen from Aerie or Panavision. So it was like reading gibberish. So I literally hired one person, Derek Johnson, to literally be my walking PDF manual. And I would say, Derek... We need this to do this interloping, interlopping, you know, whatever the term was. I was like, you got to, you figure know, figure it out, figure it out. And he would go, oh, yeah, that's on page 16, line seven. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? You know, but this is where we have gone uh, with mm -hmm. camera technology. And this is why your team and the people that you were surrounding yourself with really really matters because yeah. I think that the, the, just to wrap this up and put a bow on it, the creativity, the, the ingenuity, the, the changes and the speed at which things are coming at us, you really need a refined skill set in your team and to know that you can trust them to do the research, to have your back, to create the success for whatever project you're on. And it's not the technology so much in my mind, although yes, it's forever changing. It's the people behind that technology. And the people behind that technology who you're hiring have have to, they gotta be Swiss army knives. Yes. I love a great focus puller, but I cannot on my team, I cannot have him or her is that is their sole job. It is a big responsibility, but I need them to know more. I need them to do more. I need them to, to pitch in on other things. I, I cannot have them set up their focus monitor, set up their chair with their name on it, sit in it, and just sit there and wait to pull focus. I know. <laughs> 
which I've had on many movies. But the world is changing. Yes. And I think what you're saying is that the more that you have in your in your skill set, in your arsenal, in your talent stack. The more marketable you're going to be, the more jobs you're going to get because cinematographers want people that can do multiple jobs. That uh, just like I talked about on Active Valor, I was able to do, you know, I was the key grip, I was the gaffer, I was the camera operator, I was the uh, DP, and I was the travel coordinator. I wanted to do all those things because I that's what was required to me of me by the limitations of the locations and what we were getting access to. So it was a pleasure for me to do those things because it was for the good of the project. Yes. Now, was it difficult? Yeah, one of the most difficult jobs I've ever done. But it was so much fun uh, being able to do that. And so rewarding. And yeah. I think that that is why everybody is in filmmaking, because at the end of the day, you look at all of the stresses, all of the challenges, and you say to yourself, you know what? I have the greatest job in the world. No, I, it's truly that. And it's like as much as we talk about the budget shrinking and the schedule shrinking and the tax incentive states and all this camera and lighting technology. At the end of the day, we want a positive set environment that, that promotes creativity, that we can go in and just have fun. And, you know, I got into this job so I would never grow up past the age of five. <laughs> right. And this is a dream job for me because I can play like a five-year-old. Uh, everything is always changing. I think uh, what we do as artists is so rewarding. You can sit in that theater. You can hear the laugh of the crowd. You can see them sit back in their seat when their explosion happens. You know, and you, all these kind of things and you feel that immersion and that's something that you helped create. And this is not just from the from the director of photography, production designer, you know, set decorator. This is from the the fifth grip or the the ninth rigging grip or the electrician. This is we're all in it together. We're a family, and uh, everyone needs to say, "My God, I cannot believe I get to come to work every day where they, you know." feed us three meals a day. We're able to work in locations that 1% of the population will ever see. And we get treated very well and we get to go home to our families and then turn right around and do it the next day. On that beautifully positive note, that wraps up this episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. 
and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.